You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Thank you very much, readers. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jimmy Young. I'm the Assistant Minister here at St. John's Cranbourne and Christchurch Turidan. It's my great pleasure to read to you and preach to you from God's Word. And I have a question to begin. Why do Christians sin? Why do you sin? Now, I'm not asking why do people sin. We know the answer for that, that our hearts desire evil. Our hearts desire sin. But why do Christians who've been given new hearts, been cleansed from unrighteousness, been given the Holy Spirit, why do they sin? Have you ever wondered about that before? Have you ever thought something like that? Maybe even expressed something like what Paul says in Romans 7.15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Peter Adam once said of this chapter, Romans chapter 7, that it is about freedom, it is about forgiveness, and it is about frustration. Last week we heard about freedom, we heard about forgiveness, and this week is about frustration. The frustration of knowing what we want to do and not doing it. The frustration of doing the very thing that we But very early on in this text, we need to make a decision. Who is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about a Christian and the Christian experience? Or is he talking about himself before he became a Christian? Now, there's been lots of debate about this over the years, so let me just nerd out for just three minutes just to explain sort of the context behind this. The early church fathers held that no Christian would describe themselves like this, that the whole point of everything leading up, that Romans 6 says that we're free from sin, we've been set free, so why would something like uh, Romans 7.14, say that we are sold into slavery. That can't describe a Christian. But then later on, people like Augustine, like uh, John Calvin, like Martin Luther, came along and said that this is describing a Christian. That when it says in 7.22 that he delights in the law and his innermost being, that when he finishes the verse ascribing victory to Jesus Christ, it can only be describing a Christian. And my own view is that Paul is indeed describing a Christian. That he is indeed in describing his own Christian experience. And I think there's some good reasons for that. Particularly when I look at Romans 7 verse 18. And Paul here says, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. Two things. That if one, if Paul truly believed this, this is this damning self-assessment that there's nothing good in myself, well, it actually sounds very different to the way that Paul describes himself before he became a Christian. 
See, before he became a Christian, he was actually incredibly confident in his own righteousness. In fact, in Philippians, he describes himself before the law. He says that he was, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Completely blameless. So this, there's this distance between these two descriptions. And I think what Paul is describing is someone who's come to the end of himself and realized that he needed saving. He was not blameless at all. But the second reality is that in, in Romans 7.18, he describes himself that is in my flesh. Now this might seem like a small distinction, but I think it's meaningful that only the Christian is truly more than flesh. Only the Christian is more than flesh. Jesus says as much in John 3 verse 6, what is born of the flesh is flesh, what is born of the spirit is spirit. The fact that Paul is talking about that is in my flesh, that is this, there might be something else is evidence that he has been born again, been given the Holy Spirit, that he is more than just flesh. What I think is being described in this chapter is a Christian who is temporarily caught in sin, not mastered by sin, not dominated by sin, not defeated by sin, but caught, trapped for a moment in sin. The analogy would be that of a slave who meets his old slave master once again and all those feelings of inferiority come creeping back in. That's the person Paul is describing. He knows what he ought to do and yet does not do it. In fact, I think Romans describes this phenomenon pretty well. You see, in Romans chapter 6, it says, Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. It's saying to Christians, don't let sin have an inch in your life. Don't put yourself under that slavery again. It predisposes the fact that a Christian could put themselves under slavery again. That a Christian could let sin exercise dominion. And elsewhere in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free, therefore stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This word slavery pops up again and again. Paul says don't put yourself back under the burden of slavery. Don't let sin have an inch in your Life. Now this has all been fairly technical, but I think a story might tell it well. And I was listening to John Piper the other day talk about this and used a story from the scriptures that I think is incredibly powerful. And so I'm going to use some of his story. But it's not his story really, it's a story of a Christian we all know. It's a story of a Christian that knew the, the freedom, the joys of freedom in Christ, that knew the incredible depths of forgiveness available in Jesus, but also knew the frustration of living 
with sin. You might have heard of this Christian before. It's Peter the Apostle. You see, Jesus calls Peter to be his disciple, to be his follower, and very quickly Peter is all in. He is one of the first to recognize who Jesus truly is. This is a drawing of Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 17, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. This is Peter, who Jesus says he will build his church upon. Peter, the rock. Peter, who says he will never deny Jesus. And yet we know how the story goes. That when Jesus is arrested, people come to Peter and say, aren't you one of, this man? Aren't you one of his followers? Peter says, I don't know the man. No, 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 I think, I, think, I think you are. I think I saw him. No, 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 I don't know him. Again and again, Peter denies Jesus until Jesus looks at him and Peter weeps and weeps and weeps. And I cannot imagine... Well, I can imagine that the words coming out of his mouth in these moments would be something like what we read in Romans seven, twenty-four: Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you very might well say, well, that's, that's all good and true, but that was before Peter received the Holy Spirit. That was before Peter was, before Pentecost, and the Spirit came down and filled Peter. And that's completely true. Peter goes on to have an incredible ministry. The book of Acts details that Peter receives this filled with the Spirit more than four times. And it's not just Christians that can notice this. It's everyone. The authorities say this. In in Acts 4.13, the authorities see the boldness of Peter and John and realize that they were uneducated and ordinary men. They were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. A boldness has taken over Peter as he is filled with the Spirit. He starts preaching the gospel and thousands become Christians. He's seen this incredible ministry all over the world. And then he goes up to Antioch and he meets with Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians, gloriously saved by faith in Jesus alone. And he's probably sitting there eating bacon and ham with them, unclean foods that have been made clean in Jesus. But what we read about in other parts of the Bible is that as Peter is in Antioch, there comes a party called the Circumcision Party. A group of Jewish men who would claim that even though it's faith in Jesus that sets you free, you also need to fulfill all the Old Testament law. You need to be circumcised. You need to eat the right food. You need to do the right things. And Peter says nothing. In fact, it says this in Galatians. When Cephas, which is another name for Peter or uh, a different translation of his name, came to Antioch, I opposed him 
to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Peter and Barnabas are some of the heroes of the book of Acts. Peter is preaching and thousands of people are becoming Christians. Barnabas is the behind the scenes man, the encourager. His name literally means son of encouragement and yet he's led astray. But I wonder if you picked up why Peter is led astray. Well, it says he kept himself separate because of fear. Fear. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the reason that, Je- that Peter denies Jesus is because he fears. 25 years struggling with the same sin, temporarily mastered by it, come over by it once again. Get this, all you strugglers. 25 years with the same sin, combating the same sin of fear. Peter, at the beginning of his Christian life, is all in. Who are you? Who am I? You're the Messiah, Lord. Some of you will deny me. I will never deny you, Lord. He's up and down. Moments later, I don't know him. undergoes this incredible transformation in the book of Acts, preaches thousands of people come to know Jesus. He's the rock that Jesus is going to build his church upon and yet some of his old buddies come up and it's that same sin once again. Fear, fear, fear. And I can't help but imagine that as Paul confronts him, that as he convicts him of his hypocrisy, Saying, Peter, this is not the gospel that we believe. That you're, you're denying the gospel. You're, you're undermining the freedom we have in Christ. You're ignoring your brothers in Christ to suck up to this party, this influential group, all because of fear. That Peter might again be saying something like what we find in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death, from this cowardly body? Have you ever had a moment like that? Fighting the same sin year after year after year. Why can't I beat this, Lord? Why am I not strong enough, Lord? Why can't I just last longer, Lord? Why can't I overcome this, Lord? Why can't I just be free of this sin, Lord? What can we do? What weapons do we have to defeat this long-lasting sin? I think the weapon that we mostly try and use is the law. 
We see ourselves failing and succumbing to sin again and again and again. So what we do is make more rules for ourselves. I'm going to try harder this time. I'm going to try longer this time. I'm going to muster up all the strength that I have in order to overcome this sin. And yet the whole point of Romans 7 is that the law is powerless to transform our hearts. The law can keep you from sin momentarily, but it won't transform your heart until you do not desire sin anymore. It says as much in Romans 7, 9 and 10. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. That's what happens to us when our weapon that we wield to defeat sin is the law. It promises so much life. Yet it never delivers. See, what we actually need is not the law, but grace. Grace is what transforms our heart. Jesus is who transforms our heart. What we need is not more rules, but a glorious Savior, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not the law, but grace. There's a Greek myth that I think details this distinction between law and grace well. The Greek myth of the sirens. See, the sirens were deadly creatures that would uh, congregate around, around an island and call out in beautiful voices that would drive sailors mad, insane, that they would shipwreck their boats on the island and be cast asunder. Well, there were two men, one named Ulysses and one named Orpheus, who both heard of the story and wanted to hear or wanted to see the sirens. And so Ulysses, what he did was he put beeswax into the ears of his sailors, got them to tie him up to the mast so that he could hear the voice of the sirens. Well, he sailed past the island of the sirens and heard their beautiful voices and went temporarily insane. He fought and fought and fought to be free of the shackles that had been placed upon him, almost tore the mast of the boat in two, only for them to pass by the island, leaving him exhausted and dissatisfied. And that's often our approach to sin. We try harder, we white-knuckle it, if I can just last a bit longer. But I think the story of Orpheus is a much better example for us. See, Orpheus heard the same stories and went past the island of the sirens, but instead of being shackled to the ship, what he did was bring out his lyre, his harp, And he played music and sang music that was far more beautiful and far louder than the voice of the sirens and allowed him safe passage. The task for us is not necessarily to try harder, to white-knuckle it, to give all of our strength and energy 
but to sing a better song, to sing a better story. Not a story of our own perseverance over sin, but of a Savior who has defeated sin. A Savior who has set us free from sin. The law cannot change our hearts, but grace can, Jesus can. And he's not waiting for you to complete the law. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's not waiting for you to keep all the rules. He wants you as you are today. The law cannot transform us, but grace can and Jesus can. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is effective, that your word that cuts like a two-edged sword. Lord, may it cut us today. Cut us of our hypocrisy as we fight sin in a long fight. But may we not look to the law, not look to more rules but look to your son, look to the saviour, look to Jesus to set us free. Lord, may we be people who meditate upon the grace, the grace that is available in Jesus Christ. God, may we be people transformed in our hearts by grace. We thank you so much that we don't need to complete the law, to fulfill the law in order to be loved by you. But because of your son and his death and resurrection, all of those who find themselves in him can be known and loved and set free by you. So Lord, we ask you, set us free. Eternally. May we know your grace and know it intimately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.